Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back with you again this week. We've hoped you've enjoyed the first two cases that we've done, and we have another good one for you this week. But before we get started, Maddie, how was your first week at work? It was okay. It's going well. It's good. And my daughter started her new daycare that she loves. You can tell that she's like just happy and actually excited to get there every day. And how about you, Trish? How's your week? Saddest day of summer for me today because my son's extended school year is over. So we have 10 hours plus every day of quality time. (laughs) So much quality time. (laughs) So much quality time coming my way. So this week's case is regarding Harold Henthorne. Now, this name may be familiar to some as it's been covered by Dateline. I think the Dateline episode was back in February of 2016 called Over the Edge. So Dateline. So Dateline. And the 48 Hours episode was covered in November of 2015 called The Accidental Husband. So on September 29, 2012, Harold Henthorne and his second wife, Tony, had gone on a 12th anniversary hike in the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Now, this was a very mild summer autumn Saturday afternoon. So conditions were perfect for a hike. Can I just say my anniversary is this week? It's tomorrow. And you know what I'm not going to be doing? Hiking. Hiking. (laughs) That's probably a good thing. (laughs) Especially after hearing this story. (laughs) No, no. So sometime before 3.30, the couple left the established paved trail to go on the rockier trail to avoid the crowd. On the evening of May 6, 1995, Harold and Sandy had gone out for a drive, and they were about 30 minutes from their home on Colorado Highway 67 in Douglas County. Harold had pulled over, feeling that the front passenger tire was going flat. Now, the area that he pulled over in had no cell service or houses nearby, and the nearest hospital was a 40-minute drive. At 9.30, a local mechanic drove by Harold and Sandy and asked if they needed help, but Harold declined. The mechanic asked, can I at least shine my headlights on your Jeep? Because Harold was only using a small handheld flashlight, but again, Harold declined. 30 minutes later, around 10 p.m., Harold would end up flagging down another car and telling the occupants that the Jeep had fallen on top of his wife. That car had drove up the road trying to find a house to call 911, but when they couldn't, they returned to the scene to offer their help. Two men in the car were able to lift the car off off of Sandy, but by the time they did so, she was unresponsive. According to the men, Harold had screamed at them not to touch her, but over Harold's objections, they began CPR, and they got Sandy breathing again. Now, during this time, another car had come upon the scene and went to try to find a phone, and they were more successful, so they were able to reach 911, and then they returned back to the scene. Now, by this time, the nighttime temperatures in the mountains were near freezing, and to keep Sandy warm, the men who had pulled her from the car and revived her had taken off their jackets to lay over her, but Harold didn't bother to do the same. Emergency vehicles arrived on scene and had Sandy airlifted to a nearby hospital, but she died in surgery due to her injuries. Harold soon began telling inconsistent stories as to what had happened. He reported to one officer that Sandy had been changing the tire when it fell off its jacks, but then told other officers he had been changing the tire. He then told officers that he had been using two boat jacks to prop up the Jeep Cherokee because he couldn't get the regular jack to work even after lubricating it, but there was no luber oil found at the scene. He also suggested that he was the one that had gotten Sandy out from under the Jeep and had started CPR, all without mentioning the Good Samaritans that had stopped to help. He also switched between the reason they were on the road from either they were coming from dinner 
or they were going to dinner that night. Now, a few days after Sandy's death, one of the Good Samaritans, Patricia Montoya, had called in to the police station to voice her suspicions and to even ask if Harold had been arrested. Now, through the investigation, the police had taken pictures of a suspicious shoe print atop the Jeep's fender, which could have suggested that the Jeep had been pushed off the jacks and not having fallen off. They had also taken photos of Harold's shoes for comparison purposes, but apparently that comparison was never made. Police had also never challenged Harold's conflicting statements given to various officers. Harold was questioned about having any life insurance policies out on Sandy, and he only admitted to having one, but in actuality, he had several, and he ended up collecting a total of $600,000, including proceeds from a policy that went into effect just two and a half months prior to Sandy's death. And that policy included an accidental death rider that doubled the benefit from $150,000 to $300,000. The couple had taken a variety of photos that day, some of them eating atop of a scenic cliff overlook and posed for pictures along the trail and by all accounts was having a great time. But by 5.15, tragedy would strike. Tony would fall over 128 feet off of a cliff in the remote section of the park. Now, this section had poor cellular service and no nearby ranger stations. Harold placed a call to 911 around 5.54 p.m. And when park rangers arrived, he told them that when park rangers arrived, he told them that it had taken him time to hike down to where Tony was to kind of assess the situation, and he ended up moving her body, actually, and then he had to go find cellular service to call 911. At 6.16 p.m., Harold sent a text to Tony's brother, Barry Bertolet, back in Mississippi, indicating that Tony was in critical condition after falling from a cliff and that EMTs were on their way. He also texted to Barry that he should fly out immediately and that he wouldn't be able to keep in touch with him because his cell battery was running low. After texting Barry, he continued to have several exchanges with 911 dispatchers between his first call at 5:54 and until EMTs arrived around 8 p.m. After texting Barry, he continued to have several text exchanges with 911 dispatchers between his first call at 5.54 p.m. until the first EMT arrived around 8 p.m. Once EMT has arrived, they did examine Tony, and unfortunately, she had died from her injuries. Now, Tony Burlett was born in 1962 in Jackson, Mississippi. She's the middle child of three, and she's bookend by two brothers. Tony had graduated magna cum laude from the University of Mississippi Medical School in 1998 with a degree in ophthalmology. Tony had been married before and was divorced when she met Harold through the Christian Matchmakers dating site in 1999. Have you ever been on a dating site? You never use No, I didn't need to. Oh, well, yeah. I met my husband in a bar. Right. The old-fashioned way. (laughs) (laughs) So Harold Hanthorne had described himself as a wealthy entrepreneur with his own company who set up fundraisers for nonprofit organizations such as churches and hospitals. The name of his company was Developmental Services, Inc., not-for-profit fundraising. It's not very creative. No, but it's self-explanatory. So Harold had told Tony that his first wife had died in a freak accident in 1995. So I'm going to take a moment to talk about his first wife because it does come into play with Tony's death. Sandy Lynn Henthorne was 37 when she passed away. A few days after Lynn's death, one of the Good Samaritans, Patricia Montoya, who had stopped to help, had called into the police station to voice her suspicions about the accident and even asked if Harold had been arrested. So although there were changing stories and the Good Samaritan suspicions, 
There was only a brief investigation done, and it was wrapped up within six days, and Sandy's death was determined to be an accident. How does that happen? Like, I just don't understand with all of that information, even just having someone with conflicting stories, but to the point where the person that helped get her breathing again is calling in to say, hey, you should really dig into this, and nothing's done. I had read an article in a Rolling Stones magazine about this case, and one of the Douglas County investigators who may have been involved in Tony's investigation. I wasn't quite sure, but he was asked by his superiors to review Sandy's case because there were some similarities that we're going to come to find out. And even the administrators there, his higher up said, listen, some of this may be embarrassing to us, but just do an honest to God investigation. And he did. And what he found out was back at the time of Sandy's death, Douglas County only had four detectives for this county, which is half the size of Rhode Island. So it's a fairly big county. It was one of the fastest growing counties in the nation. And the detective that was assigned to Sandy's case was brand new, wasn't really trained, didn't really have a mentor to bounce ideas off of. So at the end of the day, it sounds like Harold just really got lucky because, again, they never compared his shoe print to the suspicious shoe print on the Jeep. They never checked into the insurance policies and they never looked to see if the jack worked or not, Mm -hmm. the one that came with the Jeep Cherokee. So they just really took his word for it. Well, and I guess even with the stories, like it wasn't as if he was in an interview room and saying, changing his story in an interview room. It was dependent upon who he was telling this to. Right. So it may even even have been a situation where if he said three different stories to three different police officers, that they never just had that kind of mutual conversation to say, well, this is what he's telling me and it's not what he's telling you, that sort of thing. Right. So in the 48 hour episode, The Accidental Husband, they actually had an accident reconstructionist review Sandy's case. Now, this accident reconstructionist found it very suspicious that the jack that had come with the Jeep Cherokee didn't work, per Harold's claim. So what they did is they set up a reconstruction of it and looked at Harold's statements. One of Harold's statements was that he dropped the lug nut and it had rolled under the car. And when Sandy went to retrieve it, that's when the Jeep came off its boat jacks and crushed her. Now, the accident reconstructionist didn't even believe the lug nut had rolled under the car since the Jeep Cherokee was on gravel surface. So they don't really roll at all. When park rangers arrived back on scene for Tony's death, right off the bat, they had a number of questions. Harold had told park rangers that he and Tony had planned to hike the Bear Lake Trail, which is a half-mile paved trail that is handicap-accessible with no elevation gain. Basically, the trail I would hike. (laughs) (laughs) The only trail. The only trail I would hike. He told the ranger that... They had switched to the Deer Mountain Trail at the last second to avoid the crowds in the park. Now, the Deer Mountain Trail is a three-mile hike climbing from 1,200 feet at its trailhead to 10,200 feet at its summit. This was an odd choice for Tony as she had undergone three knee surgeries and had chronic injuries that had left her unable to even eat. Let alone hike how many miles up a mountain? At an elevated trail, yes. So Harold claimed he was unfamiliar with the park and he had only made one earlier scouting trip when planning their anniversary surprise. Park rangers had gone to the parking lot where the Henthorns had parked their vehicle and they found a map in their car with notes written on it for the trail they were taking, which was the Deer Mountain Trail, even though at the last second he said they made that decision to take that trail. And on this map was a pink X marking the exact spot 
where Tony had fallen. So his communications after Tony's fall were also troubling to investigators. He gave conflicting vitals of Tony's condition to not only Barry, but also the 911 operator. Less than four minutes into the call that Harold had with one of the dispatchers, he said he had to turn off his cell phone because his battery was almost gone. But after hanging up with 911, Harold made another 22 calls and sent or received 98 text messages. And at least 16 of those text messages were to a friend asking him if he could drive up to the park and pick him up, even texting him the route he should take. I just imagine that text, that first text be like, hey man, my wife just fell off a cliff. Could you come give me a ride? Like what? Does he really think that he's just going to have a friend come and he's just going to walk away from what happened? I'm not sure. I don't know what happened there. I'm going to edit all that out. Yeah. (laughs) Investigators also found out that at the time of Tony's fall, Harold held numerous life insurance policies on her, which totaled to $4.7 million in the event of Tony's death. One might call that a motive. They would call that a motive. Okay, so... When investigators had asked Harold about any life insurance policies that Tony may have had, Harold only mentioned one, and this was for $1 million, which was for the couple's daughter, Haley. At the time of Tony's death, she was around the age of seven. Harold soon began telling inconsistent stories as to what had happened. The biggest reveal for investigators was finding out about Harold's first wife's death, who we already talked about. Investigators also discovered that in May 2011, there may have been a first attempt on Tony's life. The Henthorns owned a mountain cabin in Grand Lake in Ganby, Colorado. At 10 p.m. one night, Harold was, allegedly, completing some construction work or cleaning up the deck of his cabin when a beam had fallen and struck Tony in the upper back, injuring her neck. So there were inconsistent statements as to how this happened. He had told paramedics that he threw the beam and he didn't realize that Tony was there and it had hit her. He told an ER doctor, though, that the beam had fallen off the deck, hitting Tony. And he told a friend that he had dropped the bean onto Tony when he slipped from the ladder that she was holding. Now, a nurse at the ER had reported in Tony's file that Tony had indicated that she was under the deck holding a flashlight for Harold when the beam came down upon her. An account given to friends who were contacted to stay with their daughter who was asleep inside the cabin at the time, Harold had said that Tony was cleaning up the deck and had just bent down when the piece of lumber had fallen from the deck hitting her. But when Fins arrived at the cabin, they didn't see any lumber on the deck anywhere. What is known is prior to the deck incident, Harold held four policies on Tony, and he had made the beneficiary himself, even on the life insurance policy that Tony's parents had bought for their daughter. So Tony had told her mother this story, recounting it for her after she got out of the hospital, and she told her that had she not been bending over to pick something up off the ground, she most likely would have been killed. And Tony was shocked to find out that Harold had never even bothered to call her parents to tell them what happened that night. Not even a text message? Not even a text message. So in the end, doctors ruled it an accident since no one, including Tony, had voiced any suspicions. So investigators began talking to Tony's family and friends and discovered that Harold seemed to be a demanding and controlling husband. For example, he always answered the phone when anybody called, even Tony's parents or even her close friends. And he had their house phone ring to his cell phone. And any conversations Tony had were always on speakerphone with him in the room. Harold also seemed to be very controlling when it came to their daughter, Haley. He had planned her days and nights out and made it very clear that he was in charge of her care. Not even Tony was allowed to put their daughter to bed at night because he claimed it was father-daughter time. He even kept the video monitor in her room long after she ceased to be a baby and need it. So I don't think there was anything nefarious that I read, like it was something on the perverted side. It was more that this was just another factor of him being controlling. Yeah, just having to control 
control everyone in that house. Tammy Abruscato, the office manager for the practice that Tony worked in, found Harold to be creepy and was told that Tony was not allowed to schedule anything outside of normal business hours without consulting Harold first. In 2012, though, Harold did talk to Tammy about helping him surprise Tony for their 12th anniversary, their trip to the Rocky Mountain National Park. So she secretly cleared Tony's schedule for that day so that she'd be able to go. Now, after Tony's death, Harold began telling various stories once again. He told Tony's co-workers that Tony was lagging behind and that he couldn't find her. When he looked over the edge, he saw her at the bottom of the cliffs. Harold told police that Tony was taking a photo from the cliff's edge and accidentally fell over while he had been looking down at his cell phone reading a text message they had received from his daughter's babysitter about Haley's soccer team winning that day. The Monday after Tony's death, Harold filed all the insurance claims he had taken out on Tony. And five days after her death, Harold had her remains cremated. And this went explicitly against her family's wishes as they had wished to bring her back to Mississippi. But through the investigation, the police felt they had enough to arrest Harold. And in 2014, they did so, and federal authorities charged him with first-degree murder, and he was held without bond. And is that federal because they were in a national park? Yes. Okay. Also in 2014, Sandy Henthorne's case was reopened, pretty much due in part to Tony's death, to be re-examined once the coroner changed her manner of death from accident to undetermined. In September of 2015, Harold's trial began. Cameras were not allowed in the courtroom, and this trial lasted about two weeks. The prosecution, led by federal prosecutor Sanita Hazra started with painting Harold as an abjunct liar who lies about everything and stood to make $4.7 million off of Tony's life insurance, but only if Tony died. Sounds pretty accurate. The defense told the jury, my client is very unusual quirky guy who's lied, but that doesn't make him a murderer. Prosecutors used drone footage and photos documenting the couple's hikes up the mountain. They also presented evidence that Harold had visited the same area that Tony had fallen from on at least eight to nine occasions because his cell phone had pinged off the same cell towers in the area. And again, he was telling police that he'd only come once to scout out the trip. Right. They also presented evidence from the 911 call and had called Julie Sullivan, the emergency dispatcher that he had talked to that night. She testified that it's standard protocol to coach people through CPR over the phone. And she had a lot of experience in doing this as she had had about 240 individuals on the phone doing that same thing prior to Harold's call that night. She testified that there were several red flags during her call with Harold, such as Harold wasn't letting her know when he completed certain steps after she had given him instructions. And that's unusual because most people will say, well, okay, what do I do next? Right. He also wasn't out of breath. And on the open line, she should have heard heavy breathing, but there was none. She even asked if somebody else was providing CPRs. He didn't even seem to be winded. You've gone through this CPR training, right? Yes, I just went through it this summer. And I can tell you, even with the new changes to how you do CPR, because you have to do like 30 rapid chest compressions and then two breaths and then back to 30. And it's exhausting. I mean, even on a dummy, I was winded after two minutes. So he should have definitely been out of breath. About four minutes into the call that Harold had with Julie, he told her, I have to turn off my cell phone to save my battery, which we know wasn't really true. But I couldn't find anything if investigators actually looked at his cell phone to see if his battery has died or not, since he had told that to Barry and he kept telling it to 911. I don't know if they can really tell at what point the battery was going dead, but just from the evidence of him making all those phone calls and text messages after the fact would show that his battery wasn't anywhere close to dead. Dr. James Wilkerson, the chief medical examiner testified, and he testified that Tony had died between 20 to 60 minutes after her fall and was almost certainly dead by 6.15. Dr. Wilkerson also found no abrasions, contusions, or anterior rib fractures 
that are typically associated with CPR being performed. He he also testified to the fact that Tony's lipstick wasn't even smeared, which it would have been if mouth-to-mouth was performed. And you can see in the photos, if you look online, if you look up Tony Henthorne and you look at photos, you'll see that she had lipstick on that day because they have photos from their hike that day. It should have been smeared. The FBI also presented evidence that Harold hadn't worked in 20 years. Though he claimed to be a wealthy, successful entrepreneur, he had made no money of his own, and he was not raising any money for nonprofit organizations. Evidence was submitted that showed Harold's business trips consisted of him sitting in a local Panera Bread where he would surf the internet for hours, or if he had gone out of town on business trips like he usually did from like Thursday through Sunday, he pretty much went to their cabin and stayed there. So he wasn't out on business trips. Well, he didn't have to be. He was still living off of his first, first wife. wife's yes. insurance policy. And he was living off of Tony's. Well, I mean, right. Tony, she was a prominent yeah, doctor. Yeah. She had two practices back in Mississippi when they met. Now, she sold them when they moved to Colorado. And through, I think it was the 48 hours one, she had questions as to where her money, the money was going mm-hmm. because she always thought they should have more money than they did. Well, they were living off of her income, basically. The FBI also discovered that Harold had taken out life insurance policy on Grace Rischel. And she was his ex-sister-in-law to his first wife, Sandy. The insurance policy was for $400,000, and he had forged her signature, making him the beneficiary. So they felt that she was in danger. Because had he gotten away with Tony's death, more likely Grace would have been the next victim. They also testified that Harold may have stolen the $30,000 diamond out of Tony's wedding ring after she fell. The police had scoured the area during the initial investigation, but it was never found. But amazingly, eight months later, it was found in plain sight. The FBI had been putting pressure on Harold about the diamond, and miraculously it appeared, and they believe he went back and planted it. Prosecutors shared with the jury the pattern of behavior between both of Harold's wives' deaths. Remote locations with impeded communication and reduced likelihood of accidental witnesses, delayed emergency response because of the travel distance. After each incident, Harold told inconsistent stories. Harold lied about life insurance policies but collected significant proceeds from each death. Also, over family objections, he had them both cremated, and he spread their ashes in the same spot on Red Mountain in Colorado. Accidents aside, that's just creepy to spread both of their ashes in the same place. And I was kind of surprised in reading this that they allowed this in the trial for the second one but I guess the only reason would be since they had changed the death from or accidental to undetermined maybe that's what allowed them to give testimony on the first wife's death possibly technically I mean there's not really any true evidence or charges against him for that yeah but there goes to modus operandi here his first wife dies in a bizarre accident again with remote location with delayed response again all those things I just mentioned that they felt that this shows a pattern of behavior. The defense rested their case without calling any witnesses, asserting that Harold and his wives had just been victims of multiple tragic accidents. On September 21st, 2015, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury took a vote and every hand raised to guilty. So Harold was sentenced on December 8th, 2015, to a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole and fined up to $250,000. On July 26, 2017, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed Harold's conviction. Harold had tried to argue that the judge in his original trial should have never allowed the evidence in in his first wife's death. The 10th Circuit Court of Appeal did not feel U.S. District Judge R. Brooke Jackson erred in allowing it in. 
On January 8, 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court denied petitions seeking reexamination of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals decision affirming his conviction. Woo woo. So I think he's done now with appeals. I don't really see how much more he can do. Unless he comes up with some evidence that wasn't available for Mm -hmm. the trial. Maybe he has another route of appeal. So Harold, at this point, is rotting away in prison for the rest of his life. In 2015, Haley was in the custody of her Uncle Barry and his wife and is back living in Mississippi with her mom's family. So that is it. That is the case of Harold Henthorne. Life lessons? Don't go hiking on your anniversary. (laughs) You? Um, don't commit murder in a national park. Correct. Because that's under federal jurisdiction. And everyone should learn CPR. Yes. That is a good one. Yes. I'm CPR trained the last two years. And mostly because we have a pool now. So with my son, it's, you know, I just wanted that skill. But it is a skill you need to practice. Because even from year to year, I was realized, oh, I forgot a point. So it's very good to be CPR trained. All right, everyone. That's it for this week's case. We hope you'll tune in again. And if you want to give us any feedback, Maddie, where can they go to do that? We are up on Facebook, Instagram. We have a Twitter account. Uh, So any of those spots, you can give us some feedback, comments, but also on whatever system you're using to listen to your podcast, whether it be iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, just giving us some comments there and rating us. Let us know how we're doing. And that would be very helpful. Yeah, that would be great. Download us. Give us five stars. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, till next time. We'll be back, I think, later this week with another episode yes we're going to florida yay well notice we got out of pennsylvania we went to colorado finally but we'll be back in pa eventually all right till then everybody stay safe but also remember to be kind till next time guys bye